Welcome to this reading of the Business Record for the week of December 15th, the Business Record of Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. Now here's our first story from the Business Record. And our next article from the Business Record is uh, Iowa Lawmakers Talk Taxes and Economic Incentives, Housing and Partnership Breakfast. Iowa House Assistant Majority Leader Representative David Young told Greater Des Moines Area Business and Elected Leaders Tuesday that the legislature will have a vociferous debate on further action to reduce taxes during the 2024 legislative session. Young said, it's kind of like tax limbo, you know, how low can you go and at what rate and what speed, Young said. He made the comments during the Greater Des Moines Partnership's 2024 State Legislative Leadership Breakfast. The District 28 Republican was responding to a question from the partnership's 2023 government policy chair, Robert House, who asked what policies or strategies the House Republican Caucus would pursue to attract and retain business during the upcoming session, which starts on January 8th. The partnership's annual panel discussion held at the Des Moines Embassy Club West also includes State Senator Michael Bousselot from Ankeny, Senate Minority Leader Pam Yocum, Democrat from Dubuque, and Iowa House Minority Leader Representative Jennifer Confirst, of, uh, Democrat from Windsor Heights. The partnership hosted the event in tandem with the release of its 2024 legislative priorities, economic development, work-based learning, child care, housing, and placemaking. Andrea Woodward, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Public Policy for the partnership, told the business record that the partnership's agenda for the 2024 legislature was created by its Government Policy Council with input from partnership members and investors through a survey and various meetings. The partnership only takes positions on bills in which there is consensus, she said. In Texas, during the panel discussion, Young said that the Republican caucus is scheduled to meet Thursday. He told the business record after the event that members are also waiting to hear what Governor Kim Reynolds could say about tax issues in her annual condition of the state address. In 2022, Reynolds signed a 3.9% flat tax into law that was scheduled to phase in over several years, according to a March 2022 article from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. A majority of Democrats opposed the bill, saying it provides more benefits to high-income earners. But proposed in the 2024 uh, session could include further reducing Iowa's tax rates or accelerating the timetable to reach 3.9% more quickly, Young said. The Assistant House Majority Leader told the crowd Tuesday that any policy advanced by the legislature or governor would need to pay attention to future state revenues, inflation, and ebbs and flows in the economy. Young said, the goal here is the most responsible manner, make sure that we're giving back as much as we can to those who earn those dollars, the taxpayers and workers, according to Young. In the category of child care, Yoakum said the lack of child care has been a major barrier for many, Iowa standard, any, many Iowans to enter the workforce. The Senate Minority Leader said Tuesday that there are bills proposed that will increase eligibility for Iowa's child care assistance program changing the income requirement from 160% of the federal poverty level to 200%. For a family of four, that would be an income of $60,000 a year. 
for a family of two, it would be about $39,000 a year, and they would be eligible for some assistance from the state of Iowa to help offset the cost of their child care. The program's income threshold was increased during the 23 session, up from 145% of the federal poverty level. But Yoakum said the biggest challenge is how to pay child care workers in Iowa a living wage with benefits. According to Yoakum, the average child care worker in the state makes $14 per hour. That means most of those workers who take care of our children 8 to 10 hours every day actually qualify for SNAP benefits, housing assistance, the list goes on, she said. Now, if your kids are our most valuable resource, I would think that we want to pay them a wage that reflects their value. Yoakum said she would like to see a local grant program which has been implemented in Dubuque that directly bolsters wages and benefits for child care workers be used as a model at the state level. The $560,000 local grant was paired with $250,000 contribution by Dubuque's business community and a public-private partnership, Yoakum said. Young said he thinks the legislature should take another look at the Major Economic Growth Attraction Program, that's acronym is MEGA, that would provide incentives to large companies outside Iowa, including biosciences, advanced manufacturing, and research and development groups to move to or expand in Iowa. These would be projects that could develop 250-acre-plus sites that could potentially bring $1 billion in investments. Woodard told the business record that the partnership supports investment in the MEGA program. Previous legislation to get the program started stalled in 2023. That version, which was House File 642, would have allowed foreign businesses to acquire agricultural land in Iowa and receive tax credits if the foreign business is from a U.S. allied country. Young said, we believe that we should revisit that and maybe tweak a little bit, or maybe have a two-tier system where you have those giant sites and then maybe some more regional sites and some more rural areas to kind of spread that out statewide in rural and metropolitan areas. So we can take advantage of the workforce that is out there that is wanting to work and match them up with those skills in the apprenticeships and a lot of these jobs that are out there that we need to fill, Young said. Then finally, under housing, according to Converse, Iowa will need 25,000 new housing units in Iowa by 2030 across rural, urban, and suburban communities. She said, Democrats in the Iowa House have introduced legislation to expand a first-time home buyer assistance program, a grant program to help people stay in their home by investing in things like new windows and roofs, and looking at zoning regulations to allow conversion of empty commercial buildings to housing. Conference was on certain Tuesday if any of these initiatives would be supported by the Republican majority. She said lawmakers are talking to community leaders to help make information on affordable housing options more available across the state. The Enhanced Iowa Board awarded $1.4 million in community attraction tourism grants to an event center in North Liberty, and an indoor aquatic facility in Ames, as well as $503,572 in sports tourism grants to promote the National Junior High Finals Rodeo event in Des Moines in the Hy-Vee Indy Car Race Weekend in Newton. The new Centennial Center in North Liberty will receive $900,000 to go toward the total of $8,357,000 
$5,963 project cost for the construction of the 13,000 square foot venue, which will include an outdoor stage designed to accommodate crowds from 500 to 5,000 and an indoor facility that will be able to hold up to 500 people. The Fitch Family Indoor Aquatic Center in Ames will get $500,000 to put toward the $31,374,294 project cost for the construction of a 39,000 square foot recreational and wellness facility, which will include a six-lane lap pool, zero-depth recreational pool with a current channel, children's play structure, a wellness pool, two water slides, locker rooms, a party meeting room, multi-purpose rooms, and walking area. Newton Community Events Incorporated received $500,000 to market the Hy-Vee Indy Car Race Weekend on July 12th through the 14th in 2024. Catch Des Moines got $3,572 for social media marketing and digital billboards for the National Junior High Finals Rodeo, which will be in June of 2024. Former NFL quarterback Alex Smith will be the keynote speaker at the Greater Des Moines Partnership's 2024 annual dinner on January 25th at the Community Choice Credit Union Convention Center. The annual dinner celebrates the past year's economic and community development successes and provides an outlook into the future of the Des Moines region. The event will include a reception at 5 p.m. with the keynote address and dinner beginning at 6.30 p.m. The partnership will also present its annual report. Smith played 16 seasons in the NFL for three different teams, the San Francisco 49ers, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Washington Commanders. In 2018, Smith suffered a serious leg injury that could have cost him his leg, but after 17 surgeries and rehab, he returned to the field in 2020 and earned NFL Comeback Player of the Year by the Associated Press, the Sporting News, and Pro Football Writers of America. Since his retirement from the NFL, Smith has worked as an analyst on ESPN since 2021. There are reservations for the event, and they can be accepted at the um, Greater Des Moines Partnerships website. And we'll now take a look at the Business Records Weekly uh, Real Estate column, which is written by Kathy Bolton of the Business Record. The Grove at Hickman, LLC, located in Gilbert, Arizona, and RT Family Properties, LLC, paid Hickman Partners, LLC, $13.2 million for property located at 2400 Hickman Road in Des Moines. The 11-acre parcel includes the Royal Oaks apartment complex that was built in the early 1970s. The property is valued at just over $9 million. DRH ARK LLC, located in Ankeny, paid JJR Holdings and SRM Holdings each $1.4 million for property at 6300 Northeast 14th Street in Des Moines. The 2.7-acre parcel includes an 18,893-square-foot office and warehouse built in 2018. The property is valued at $2.49 million. SAIA Motor Freight Line, located in Johns Creek, Georgia, paid Trip Portfolio $4.7 million for property on uh, 5299 Northeast 22nd Street in Des Moines. The 10.3-acre parcel includes a 17,800-square-foot transit warehouse built in 1973. 
That property is valued at $2.1 million. JJR Holdings, uh, located in Ankeny, paid Seek and Set LLC and Valor Home Builders $1.6 million for eight residential lots, each with two-story bi-attached residence that was built in 2023. The properties are located on Northeast 14th Street in Des Moines, and that's a look at our real estate uh, column for this week in the business record. Our next article is uh, written by Michael Crum of the business record. And the headline is EMC is optimistic about the future of the hub tower. EMC insurance companies will move forward with plans to lease space in the hub tower, which will be vacated when the Dickinson law firm moves to 801 grand as part of its merger with the Bradshaw law firm. The firms recently announced their plans to merge, which will be effective January 1st, 2024. Dickinson will leave about 25,000 square feet it currently leases in the EMC-owned hub tower. It will join Bradshaw in about 33,000 square feet of space in 801 Grand. In a statement to the business record, officials with EMC expressed optimism about filling the space at 6th Avenue and Walnut Street. In a statement issued by EMC, they said, as a landlord, it is always unfortunate to lose a tenant, but we are optimistic for the future of the hub tower and kaleidoscope at the hub. Since announcing a significant renovation to the kaleidoscope in August, we've seen increased interest from potential tenants. Work in that project is already underway. And that work includes updating the exterior with a darker, more eye-catching color, officials said. There will also be a larger, more energy-efficient windows to allow more natural light in the building and improved tenant branding with new signs on the exterior of the building. The project is scheduled to be completed in early 2024 with Ballet Des Moines moving into its new space on the street level of the kaleidoscope during the first quarter. Ballet Des Moines announced in August that it was undertaking a $2.5 million capital campaign as part of its plan to move into about 9,000 square feet on the first floor of the building located at 655 Walnut Street. In its statement, EMC officials said the renovations and continued leasing of space is part of its plans as landlord after the company decided in January to take the properties off the market. They said that after being on the market, the decision was made that the timing and market were not right, and they're still actively leasing space in the building. EMC remains committed to downtown and believes Hub Tower and the Kaleidoscope are high-quality, well-maintained properties in an attractive location. And again, that article was written by Michael Crum of the Business Record. And some additional uh, real estate news here. And again, this is a column by uh, Kathy Bolton of the Business Record. A building permit has been issued from the Des Moines area's most anticipated and sought-after indoor entertainment value venues, I should say. And that's Top Golf. The valuation of the building is $13 million, according to the permit. Issuance of the permit comes 17 months after the Dallas, Texas-based company announced it planned on building a venue on about 23 acres located at 7655 Mill Civic Parkway in West Des Moines. The site is on the northwest corner of South Jordan Creek and Mill Civic Parkways, one of the metro area's busiest intersections. The permit for Topgolf was among 37 issued in October and November for new commercial projects in the greater Des Moines area. Valuation of the projects totaled over $181 million. 
Work on the Top Golf developments moving forward quickly, thanks mostly to mild weather in November and December, said Richard Hurd, the president and founder of Hurd Real Estate. Hurd owns the land on which Top Golf will be located and is the project's developer. The Top Golf venue will include 35,534 square, square feet of space spread over two levels, according to a site plan approved administratively in October by city staff. The arc-shaped building will include a 72 climate-controlled hitting bays, eight of which will be in luxury suites. The building will also include a bar and dining area, a covered patio, and outdoor seating. Depending on the pace of construction, Top Golf venue will likely be open by this time in 2024, Heard said. It could be earlier. It just depends on the weather, according to Heard. Top Golf has long been a national retailer. Islands have wanted to see open a venue in the state. In its first years of operation, Top Golf opened venues in areas with population of one million or more. In 2019, Top Golf began operating or began, I'm sorry, began opening venues in mid-sized markets, including Omaha, where it opened a facility in mid-2020. The popularity of Top Golf has spawned the development of venues with similar setups. Ellen Stoy is developing Bombers, a Johnston-based entertainment venue that will include 36 climate-controlled hitting bays, bowling lanes, pickleball, arcade games, restaurants, bars, and conference and event center space. A building permit was issued November 15th for the project, which will be located at 5055 Merle Hay Road. The building's valuation is at $25.4 million, according to the permit. The project was delayed when a Habitat of Indiana bats, an endangered species, was discovered on the property according to information provided to Johnson City Council this fall. The bats are typically present between April and October, according to the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club. Grading is now underway on the site. It's not known when construction of venue will be completed. Elsewhere in the metro area, a permit was issued for Building B in the one, I'm sorry, in the IED Business Park in Altoona. The building is valued at $43.1 million. The 455,000-square-foot industrial warehouse is part of a park under development on 21st Street Northwest. A permit was issued November 21st for the remodeling of the former Dot Dash Meredith office building at 1615 Locust Street in Des Moines. The project is valued at $17 million. Mid-American Energy bought the property a year ago. When the remodeling is complete, the utility company will vacate space and has leased in the Ruan Center since 1975. A permit was issued November 1st for the remodeling of space at Merle Hay Mall that previously had been occupied by Coles. Uh, Dink's Pickleball is opening an indoor pickleball venue in space that will include 13 courts, and that project is valued at $728,000. Commercial building permits were issued for 37 projects in Greater Des Moines in October and November. A business record review of permits shows the valuation of those projects was over $181.8 million. And again, that's an article written by Kathy Bolton of the business record. In financial news, Casey's General Stores on Monday reported fiscal second quarter earnings of $158.8 million, or $4.24 per share. That's up from $137.6 million 
by $3.67 per share in last year's second quarter. The results beat Wall Street expectations after the average estimate of five analysts surveyed by Zach's investment research was for earnings of $3.74 per share. The company's reported revenue for the quarter rose 2% to $4 billion from $3.98 billion last year, but fell short of Wall Street forecasts, with five analysts surveyed by Zach's having expected a revenue of $4.15 billion. Inside, same-store sales increased 2.9% compared to last year, and the same-store fuel gallons were flat at 0% compared to a year ago with a fuel margin of 42.3 cents per gallon. Due to the hard work of our team, Casey's delivered an outstanding second quarter highlighted by strong inside and fuel gross profit growth. That's a statement from Darren Rebelez, Casey's chairman and president and CEO. Inside same store inside same store sales were driven by prepared food and dispensed beverages with whole pies and bakery performing exceptionally well. Our fuel team continues to do an excellent job finding the right balance between gallon growth and gross profit margin, as evidenced by another strong fuel margin quarter, while the same store gallons were flat. The team continued to effectively manage the stores by reducing same store labor hours while growing business at the same. Elsewhere in the business record, we turned a little, um, and I shouldn't say a little, I turned to a story on uh, lawmakers discussing child care challenges solutions during Iowa Women's Foundation Solutions Summit. While progress has been made in increasing the availability of quality, affordable child care in recent years, more needs to be done, state lawmakers said in a recent panel discussion during a forum on challenges facing child care providers in Iowa. The discussion occurred during the Iowa Women's Foundation First Iowa Solutions Summit, focused on child care and solutions to solving the state's child care shortage. The summit was held December 6th at Prairie Meadows in Altoona. Participating in the panel discussion were Representative Heather Matson, a Democrat from Ankeny, Representative Megan Jones, a Republican from Sioux Rapids, Senator Jeff Edler, a Republican from State Center, and Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines. The forum was moderated by former television news reporter and political analyst Dave Price. During the conversation, lawmakers discussed challenges the industry is facing, efforts to increase wages for child care workers, and elevating a job to a quality job and career rather than a low-paying, entry-level position. And here are the highlights of the discussion. Matson said, The continued investment in the Teach Early Childhood Scholarship Program and the Child Care Wages Salary Supplement Program has had really great effects and is evidence-based and is really great for helping the actual workforce get more skills. This is a low-wage profession, and it shouldn't be, because it is incredibly hard work. So the more we can continue to invest in it as a real profession it is, that is a big part of the recruitment and retention. So I would say continue to invest in the work we have done to invest in those programs. Jones said it's grants. The folks back home know what they need and how best to use that financing, she said. The Spencer YMCA was able to access those funds and up their hourly pay to their employees a couple of dollars an hour. And that's game changing for some of these people. Some of those folks are probably borderline needing state assistance for child care themselves. We were able to bump that up a little bit. 
our child care providers know what they need and how best to utilize those funds. So if we can give them a little injection so they can take care of their short-term or long-term goals, we have to do that. Madsen said the challenges in larger communities aren't so much about access as they are about cost and workforce retention. Bolton said, I would say increasing eligibility for child care assistance has been a big deal. I think we have to go further than that. We are at 160% of the federal poverty level right now, which is a help from raising it from 145%. I had a proposal. We voted on it and didn't get passed to do 200%. I think there's a definite need at 200% level to get accessibility for child care for these families. If we have more people being able to choose to have child care and a career and advance that, that's good for both ends of it. By increasing that, it's a pretty minimal investment to be a huge change for Iowa families and a really good positive impact economically for our state as well. Edler said there, I don't feel there is one right answer. This is such a broad spectrum approach to a very large challenge. I think we worked collaboratively in the legislature the last three years, especially to come up with the best way we can to maximize Iowa taxpayer dollars to help them to them help the communities they live in provide the child care resources they need. We need to make sure we have that collaborative approach between the public and private sector. If a large business comes in and needs employees to have child care, let's have them help do that. That brings buy-in to the community. I would also say it would be really nice if we could just get some help out of federal partners to help alleviate what we call that cliff effect. Another topic varies to build on, Bolton said, I would say getting back to what I would call the band-aid that was put on the problem and the staffing ratio equation, not using that as a permanent solution. We don't have to be comfortable and make that the new standard moving forward. We want more people engaged in this profession long term, and that should have been a temporary solution and should not be viewed as a permanent one. Jones said, every administrative rule is being released, rewritten, and readopted, she said. There has to be some easy fixes that we can help to eliminate some of the red tape child care providers are faced with and comply with. We need high-quality child care. The kids deserve it. The families deserve it. But we need to look at some of those they're having to deal with, the red tape, the paperwork, the reports. It's going to take some time because it's a lot of work, but we need to make sure that those rules are working and that they're there for a reason and that they are indeed keeping kids safe. Madsen commented, I think one of the things that we can build on is a pilot project that passed last session that if you are a child care provider, staff in a child care facility, and they have kids that are child care aides, then you automatically qualify for child care assistance. I'm hopeful that we'll see some good progress on that and then be able to expand upon it. Edler said that I would go back to the federal partnerships because in certain areas there's a disincentive for families to make more money. The way the system is set up, once they hit a certain level, the system goes away or diminishes quickly. One of the biggest things is making sure we have systems that allow for individual Iowans to progress. And another thought, uh, the state senators and representatives said, uh, State Senator Bolton said, it's just not a solution to say more teenagers need to enter the workforce to address a workforce crisis. The solution to make this work better is through grant programming. It's through being able to provide the support as needed for child care businesses to be successful and for people to be able to make true careers out of being child care providers. Senator Edler said, 
uh, child care providers need to continue to provide information to lawmakers about their needs. It's all a collaboration, as I'm trying to gather that information and understand in different regions what specifically they need and being able to tie into those as an employer or child care facility is essential. Representative Jones' comment, sometimes government isn't the solution to the problem, and a lot of times it's not right. We're always happy to help, but a lot of times the best ideas are internal. There are a lot of organizations that come to us with great ideas and are able to do that without us passing a law and mandating it and putting the heavy hand of government coming down on folks. And Representative Matson said, there have been so many good pieces of legislation that have passed over the last several years, but I think we can agree that none of them are really paradigm shifting, she said. There are some good things along the edges that have helped make progress, but we wouldn't still be sitting here talking about a workforce crisis when it comes to child care if they were really big things that were fundamentally changing where we are as a state. And we're at the mid-break uh, point in reading the business record for the week of December 15th. Uh, you're listening to this week's edition of the business record. And we thank the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the business record to IRIS so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS programs, please give us a call at 243-6833. And now let's go back to the business record. And our next story from the business record, a portion of the former DMU campus to house shared regional health care training facility, Polk County announces $5 million contribution to this project. Des Moines University and the Polk County Board of Supervisors, along with other educational partners, are collaborating to establish a shared regional simulation center on Des Moines University's former Grand Avenue campus, that will provide advanced healthcare training opportunities to healthcare education institutions across central Iowa. The new center will be located in Ryan Hall, a 90,000 square foot facility, and offer medical simulation technology and training spaces for the region's post secondary and higher education health sciences programs. At a press conference Tuesday, the Board of Supervisors announced their $5 million contribution to support the project. The planning, design, and creation of the center in Ryan Hall is expected to take up a year to launch, according to a news release. Polk County Supervisor Angela Connolly said in the release that the county's partnership on the project began after she met with DMU President and CEO Angela Walker Franklin last spring to discuss workforce education needs and revitalizing the DMU campus through a shared training facility. Connolly said, we know that the needs of our individual healthcare institutions are large, and we believe that investing in a shared resource will put Central Iowa on the map as an educator, education innovator in the healthcare workforce. Des Moines Area Community College, Mercy College of Health Sciences, and Des Moines Public Schools are collaborating with Polk County and Des Moines University to develop a shared recruitment and retention strategy, as well as strategies to engage rural partners with the center. The Simulation Center is intended to be one piece of a larger vision to build Iowa's pipeline of healthcare workers. The collaboration overall will focus on engaging Des Moines public school students, maximizing and increasing capacity in local healthcare programs, and incentivizing graduates to stay in Iowa. Des Moines University sought to spearhead this collaborative community initiative in response to the challenges locally and nationally recruiting skilled healthcare workers. 
This is a significant step in our ongoing commitment to healthcare education in our community and allows us to begin to realize our vision for the 3200 Grand Avenue facilities. And that's a quote from uh, the president of DMU, Walker Franklin. Our next story from the business record, Amerigroup Iowa to be renamed WellPoint in January 2024. Amerigroup Iowa, a subsidiary of Elements Health um, serving Medicaid enrollees, will begin rebranding as WellPoint in January 2024 to reflect the company's aim to support whole health. The rebranding will not result in any changes to current Amerigroup members' health benefits or coverage. Members will continue to have access to their established primary care providers, specialists, hospitals, and other health care facilities. The transition will also not lead to any changes to Amerigroup's agreements or levels of support with its health care providers, according to a press release. Providers who, have, who serve current Amerigroup members will have continued access to tools and resources for day-to-day -day administrative tasks. WellPoint's suite of health benefits is designed for consumers at any stage of life, offering access to supportive health solutions, including services from in-home wellness visits and transportation to the deployment of mobile medical clinics in low-income and rural communities. New ID cards with WellPoint brand will be mailed in early 2024. The Des Moines uh, Arts Center has received a 2024 Cultural Leadership Grant from Bravo Greater Des Moines that will help support free admission and educational programming throughout the year. Funding has helped the Arts Center expand adaptive arts programs in an effort to create equitable art experiences for the Des Moines deaf and hard of hearing community, the Des Moines blind and low vision community, and the autism community. It has also allowed the Arts Center to offer new exhibitions, including upcoming traveling exhibition, States of Becoming. We accept the cultural leadership grant in the spirit of reciprocity. Just as the citizens of Des Moines, uh, Greater Des Moines region support the Arts Center, to so too does the Arts Center support them through our art school, the John and Mary Pepperjohn Sculpture Park, and a robust variety of free programs and exhibitions. And that statement comes from the director of the John and Mary Pepperjohn Center, Kelly Baum, and she said that in a press release. And the uh, deadline to apply for a third cohort of DMAX uh, TechWise program, which is scheduled to begin in March of 2024, is fast approaching. That deadline is January 9th of 2024. The training is free, and all students are awarded $4,250 to participate. During the program, DMAC computer science students are selected to participate in 18 months of professionally-led training for about 10 to 12 hours a week, supplementing traditional coursework. DMAC graduated 13 students in the first cohort during the fall semester and currently has 32 students participating in the second cohort. DMAC was one of the first colleges in the country to be selected to offer the TechWise program, which is a Google-backed tech education program. The program recently received the Outstanding Innovation Award from the Community Colleges for Iowa for offering a unique training and opportunity for students. Talent uh, Michelle Roos, DMAC Computer Science District Chair, said in a press release, Talent Sprint's TechWise program has offered our students accelerated extracurricular education experience that rivals an internship. Students in the DMAC IT programs who also attend TechWise find themselves challenged by the supplemental instruction, 
while building skill sets for their future careers. Some students elect to earn DMAC credit while in the program, and people who want to apply can do so on a link on the DMAC website. In November, the Food Bank of Iowa distributed a record 2.15 million pounds of food, topping the previous record set in October 2020 during the height of the pandemic. More than 191,000 individuals, 42% of whom are children, and 71,000 households continue to receive meals from the Food Bank of Iowa pantries each month. Thousands more sought help last month through meal sites supported by the Food Bank of Iowa, with more than 175,000 meals served. Food Bank of Iowa CEO Michelle Book said in a press release, We see no end in sight. Strengthening anti-hunger programs in the next farm bill will help. A fully funded farm bill supports the folks facing food insecurity and helps farmers and ensures national security. America should not be a country where children go to bed hungry. And our next article is actually a column by David Elbert, a longtime uh, writer for the Business Record. And he reviews some of the top business headlines of the past 40 years years. And uh, he has uh, written for the business record. And before that, he was a writer and editor and columnist for the Des Moines Register for 37 years, covering local politics, business and culture. And the business record asked Dave to highlight some of the key stories of the past 40 years. So we'll take a look at some of those. The landscape of Des Moines of Des Moines has changed dramatically in 40 years since the business record began publishing. Much has changed for the better, although there were a few stumbles. It took years to decide that neither a casino nor a rainforest would help revive downtown. Fortunately, neither ever happened. We did, however, build a transit mall on Walnut Street in the mistaken belief that it would encourage retail activity, only discovered that all it really did was speed the exit workers from downtown at 5 o'clock. But every time we tripped, we got up and moved on. The results are everywhere. And if you look today in the architecture of downtown as well as throughout the metro area where the suburban population has more than tripled from just under 80,000 in 1980 to more than 275,000 in 2020. Forty years ago, there were three tall 15-plus story buildings downtown. Today, there are eight from which you can view a world-class sculpture garden, a beautiful riverfront, and many other entertainment venues along with vibrant retail and housing. To understand how far we've come, it helps to look back at our inaugural publication. Our first issue contains stories about 13% home mortgage rates, ambitious plans for downtown, and Iowa's first new governor in 14 years, 36-year-old Terry Branstad. We didn't pay much attention at the time to the fact that Iowa was perched on the leading edge of the 1980s farm crisis. Disaster struck a few months later with the force of a sledgehammer, and continue to pound the Iowa economy with the relentlessness of a pile driver for most of the remainder of the decade. And here's what we saw starting with the 1980s. In 1984, as the new year began, Des Moines business leaders were rarely affected by the advancing list of farm foreclosures that would result in the failure of 39 Iowa banks by the end of the decade. None of those bank failures were in Des Moines, although several local banks, including Bankers Trust and Valley Bank, suffered losses that were tied to the, rural, the farm economy. 
For the time being, city leaders continued to focus on rebuilding the downtown, an effort that had begun a decade earlier with the construction of the 25-story Des Moines Financial Center and the 35-story Ruan Center. In January, John Ruan announced plans for a 30-story World Trade Center of Des Moines. It would grow to a 100-story proposal before efforts were permanently set aside a decade later. A month later, James Hubble Jr. announced plans for the 20-story Hub Tower, which included an attached two-story, two-block-long shopping mall called the, Kaleidos called the Kaleidoscope at the Hub. When completed two years later, the projects were prematurely credited, credited with saving downtown retail and prompted the creation of the Walnut Street Transit Mall. Also that year, Robert Hauser, longtime chairman of Bankers Life, retired and assumed leadership of the Des Moines Development Corporation, the nonprofit group that would steer downtown redevelopment efforts into the 21st century. In 1985, the lottery was launched. Big changes came with that new year. There were decades of legislative opposition to gambling melted when Bob Ray handed over the governor's chair to Brandstad. On August 22nd, Iowa got into the lottery business, selling an estimated 1.6 million tickets the first day. Horse and dog racing would follow four years later, with casino-style slots approved in 1995. Also in 1995, Bankers Life, the city's largest insurance company, changed its name to Principal Financial Group. Gannett Corporation, the nation's largest newspaper chain, won a bidding war for the Des Moines Register, paying $200 million for Iowa's largest daily and associated properties. Principal, which had begun targeting the investment dollars of retirees, was on a roll the register was rolling too, but in a different direction as circulation continued to decline. Out in the state, bank failures hit a post-depression peak with the 11 Iowa banks closing by year end. In 1986, farmland values fall. The new year was not much better for rural bankers. Ten more Iowa banks failed in 1986. Farmland values were now down 45% from the 1981 peak and statewide bankruptcies were at an all-time high. Bankers in Des Moines argued that one way to cushion the fall would be to allow banks to consolidate under interstate ownership, a regulatory move that would distribute bank losses among a wider group of owners. Iowa lawmakers continued to oppose interstate banking for three more years, allowing economic havoc to continue to spread. Redevelopment in downtown Des Moines slowed to a crawl, one project of note involved the historic Rock Island Depot on 4th Street, which had been vacant for 17 years with calls for its demolition before the business record owner Connie Weimer and building restorer Bruce Gerleman stepped forward to save. We now move to 1987. A big culture change occurred when private businesses took over retail sales of liquor, ending direct state control of alcoholic beverage sales, which dated from the end of the prohibition in the 1930s. Culture stretched in a different direction in January when Russian ballet superstar Rudolf Nureyev performed at the Des Moines Civic Center. But the big news of the year was a 508-point drop in the Dow on October 19th, the largest ever single-day drop point for the Dow. While some feared a return of a 1930s-style Great Depression, it turned out to be the 
the beginning of an extended period of market volatility characterized by what economists called rolling recessions. Beyond agriculture, the recession that most affected Des Moines involved savings and loans. High interest rates led many of the bank-like institutions to invest heavily in real estate in southern states where retirees were creating boom markets. But like all overbuilt boom markets, it collapsed. The savings and loan crisis didn't hit bottom for a few more years. When it did, the bad investments wiped out many of Iowa's savings and loans. One of the bright spots that year was the $27 million state of Iowa historical building just down the hill from the Iowa Capitol. 1998, during a groundbreaking ceremony on August 16th for Iowa's tallest building, the 44-story 801 Grand, Principal Financial Chairman John Taylor offered an unusual gift to those present, white pine seedling from his native Idaho. White pines can grow well over 100 feet in height, Taylor noted, adding, I hope there will be a resurgence of the white pine in the upper Midwest where it can play an ecological role helping clean the water and air. Taylor Taylor was not alone in looking to the future. Developer Bill Knapp announced a partnership with Denny Elwell to jumpstart development in Ankeny with 500 acres of housing and 220 acres of commercial development. Iowa Realty said it would build Country Club Estates, a park-like residential development west of the interstate between University Avenue and Hickman Road. In downtown, plans were unveiled for embassy suites on the Des Moines River, a new hotel that signaled renewed interest in an area that a decade later would be rebranded East Village. And final year of the 1980s, 1989, Iowa's first paramutual horse race was run amid snow flurries on March 1st at Prairie Meadows Racetrack in Altoona. Opening day turned out to be the only day that met gambling expectations. The track limped into bankruptcy court two years later. The Rouen Grand Prix, three days of European-style car races in July through downtown Des Moines, was more to our liking and easy to watch from the skywalk. It continued for five summers until it was washed out by the flood of 1993. And throughout 1988 and 1989, New York architect Mario Galasonas had quietly slipped into town several times with a handful of Yale University students to research the history of local development. Their work would change the face of Des Moines and help us make a go help make us a go-to destination for young professionals. So we'll move into the 1990s. The uh, year of big change began in January when Gadosonas presented his findings to the annual meeting of the Greater Des Moines Chamber of Commerce, prompting city leaders to launch a series of public vision planning sessions. The first session in July focused on a western gateway to downtown. In August, it was about creating a central business district loop. Next came sessions about the downtown riverfront, East Village, and downtown housing. Separately, John Ruan said he would sponsor the World Food Prize, an international award created in 1986 by Iowa native and agronomist Norman Borlaug, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. After years of effort, Iowa lawmakers approved interstate ownership of banks, allowing a long-planned merger of Des Moines-based Banks of Iowa with First Star Bank of Minneapolis. Other bank mergers follow with Central National Bank having three sets of owners before it became part of the Bank of America chain. 
Other news included a merger of two of Iowa's largest power utilities, Des Moines-based Iowa Resources and Sioux City-based MidAmerican Energy. Magazine publisher Meredith Corporation sold its Des Moines printing plant in the 44-story 801 Grand open for business. Moving into 1991, much of the news in 1991 was not good. With the collapse of the United Federal Savings Bank in March and the American Federal Savings Bank months earlier, Iowa lost its two largest savings and loan banks. Altogether, government insurance had to cover $2 billion of deposit, or about 25% of the value of Iowa's savings and loans. Prairie Metals Racetrack filed for bankruptcy in November, leaving Polk County taxpayers with $40 million of debt. The county was eventually reimbursed, but not before gambling laws were expanded to allow casino operations at the racetrack, and two county supervisors were voted out of office. Worse news arrived in December when an estimated $100 million of investments by local governments went missing. The Iowa Trust scandal took years to unwind and resolve. In the meantime, 108 Iowa school districts and city and county governments had to make do as best they could. The Iowa State Fund manager wound up in federal prison, and Iowa's losses totaled about $75 million, of which $68 million was eventually recovered. In 1992, the Yonkers department store chain was sold to public shareholders. Three Yonker brothers opened the first general store in Keokuk in 1856. Eighteen years later, a fourth brother, Herman, opened a store in Des Moines. By 1978, the family owned 28 stores in five states, which were sold to Equitable of Iowa. Equitable planned to sell Yonkers stock to the public for $15.50, to $18.50 a share, but wound up fetching only $12.50 a share. Even worse, by the close of the first day's trading, shares had dropped below $12. Meanwhile, Tone's brother announced plans to build a 250,000-square-foot plant in Ankeny, east of Interstate Highway 35, a move that still produces sweet smells for passing motors on days when spices are cooking. At the other end of the metro, West Des Moines approved rezoning for entrepreneur Gary Kirk's Glen Oaks Golf Community, which became Iowa's first gated community. In November, a lone gunman walked into the hugely popular, popular Drake Diner on a Sunday evening and killed two employees in front of 30 to 40 diners. 1993, the year began with the usual flow of news. Yonkers was talking about closing its downtown store, Employers Mutual. The company announced plans for a 20-story office tower. Marsha Hansen became the first woman to head a major, a major Iowa bank, and that was First Star Bank and Iowa Methodist and Lutheran Hospitals received permission to merge. Then, as the 5th Annual Ron Grand Prix was being set up on Friday, July 9th, concern grew about the volume of water flowing under downtown bridges. Torrential rains had dumped 8 inches in the Raccoon River watershed northwest of Des Moines the day before, and the Sailorville Reservoir, which controlled the flow of the Des Moines River into uh, downtown, was already full. When the wall of water unleashed by biblical rains up north reached Des Moines late Saturday, it swamped the city's waterworks, shutting off the water supply for 250,000 people. That same night, the swollen Raccoon River backed up into the Des Moines River, inundating much of downtown. To supply the city with drinking water, the U.S. military flew in 23 giant water bladders that had previously been used by U.S. troops in the Gulf War. 
President Bill Clinton flew here to offer comfort after 11 gruesome days, Des Moines Water Works resumed pumping clean water to the city and a decades-long repair process began. Statewide da damage from the floods was estimated at $2.7 billion. Moving ahead to downtown uh, school in 1994, one victim of the flood was a vision plan to create closer connections between downtown and the rivers. Before the flood, there were proposals to widen the Des Moines River, creating a mini peninsula for City Hall, the public library, and other riverside buildings. Another idea was to flood an area south of downtown, the former lakeside community near Grays Lake. After the flood, both concepts were dropped. Unscathed by the flood was a fledgling effort to open a downtown school. A year-old joint venture between 30 businesses and Des Moines Public Schools had 42 students in kindergarten through second grade when its first school year ended in June, with a waiting list of 95 for August. Prairie Meadows Racetrack opened in 1993, but was in danger of closing again until the Iowa legislature agreed in 1994 to allow slot machines, creating a hybrid gambling operation called a Rossino. The big news in November was the Republican takeover of the U.S. House of Representatives. Longtime Altoona Democrat Neil Smith lost a seat he'd held since 1959. Smith was one of the most powerful men in Congress and had brought much political pork to Iowa over the years. With his defeat, John Ruan finally gave up hopes of attracting federal money to build the 100-story Des Moines World Trade Center in Des Moines and shift his philanthropic focus to the World Food Prize. And moving along, uh, 1995, the new year bought new attention, brought new attention to local media. January cover story in the business record was about rebuilding of WOI-TV. Central Iowa's first TV station launched in 1950 had just been sold to Citadel Communications following a failed two-year legal battle to preserve ownership by Iowa State University. February bought new, brought news about the departure of Des Moines Register editor Geneva Overhauser and managing editor David Westfall. The pair implied that professional dissatisfaction with Kinnett's ownership prompted their departure, but later admitted that their own inner office romance sparked their simultaneous exits. This is the second time in six years the newspaper had to replace top editors. At the end of 1989, editor James Gannon and managing editor Arnold Garson were transferred to other Gannett newspapers following months of complaints and resignations by newsroom staffers. Meanwhile, Magazine publisher Meredith Corp, which also owned TV stations around the country, was moving ahead with plans for a major addition to its corporate campus that would create a Western bookend for the Vision Plan's Western Gateway Park. In other news, Hy-Vee moved its corporate headquarters from Sheraton to West Des Moines. Des Moines Golf and Country Club announced it would host a PGA Senior Open Championship in 1999. In utility um, Consolidation continued when Mid-American Energy merged with Davenport-based Iowa Illinois Gas and Electric Company. And final note from 1995, A. Arthur Davis was elected mayor of Des Moines. He would die in office two years later, and the city council would name former Iowa governor Robert Ray as his temporary replacement. And we'll pick up with the history, that 40-year history of business development in Des Moines uh, next week. But uh, until then, we appreciate you listening to IRIS. You've been listening to the business record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. I'm Pat Steele, and thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.